Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today, part two, a rebuttal to yesterday's program. Jonathan Last, who is a senior writer with the Weekly Standard, has a new book out. We talked about that yesterday. What to expect when no one's expecting America's coming demographic disaster. And he says, uh, so far from overpopulation, which is the worry of many, that uh, we should worry about underpopulation, and that if America wants to compete, we need to have more babies. We talked about that. We had a, quite a bit of comment during the program and after, including a response from uh, Dr. Robert Davies uh, from here at Utah State University. Uh, he's a physicist and climate change and sustainability educator. Uh, he said uh, several points on population and on climate change and sustainability needed rebuttal. He asked for rebuttal time. We're happy to continue that discussion. Welcome to the program, Robert well, thanks. Davies. Thanks very much, Tom. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you uh, being on the program. Uh, we'd love to continue this discussion with you as well, and uh, we we just want to know your views on this. What about uh, population? Do you think we're headed for overpopulation or underpopulation? What about climate change? We'll be talking about that and sustainability. And how do your views on climate change, population, sustainability affect your lifestyle? Of course, this is not an academic discussion. It very much affects how we live, or many people believe it should affect how we live. There's almost a quasi-religious divide on this. Uh, those who uh, definitely believe that there is a, an urgent need to uh, solve problems of human-caused climate change uh, feel that real urgency. Others don't, and there's a divide on that. Educators such as yourself, Robert Davies, uh, I'm, I don't know, it, would you admit to some frustration with this with, with some people, or, or you, you just patiently chip away as you see it? Well, I, you know, actually, I think we're seeing some real movement, and in particular uh, among the, the younger generation. It's just really seeing, uh, able to more effectively and objectively evaluate the evidence that's put before them. They don't have a lot of, uh, a lot of the preconceptions and the, and, and the baggage that so we all sort of start to carry with different issues as we get older. Uh, psychologists have done quite a lot of study as to what we humans choose to believe and why, and it turns out we're, we're pretty irrational people, all of us. And, uh, and um, so, uh, so there, are, there are myriad reasons that people, uh, we reject uh, inconvenient, uh, unpleasant information. Certainly that's true in the, in the realm of uh, climate change and sustainability as well. So I call this a quasi-religious divide. Stephen Amott on our Facebook page, you can comment there, by the way, Utah Public Radio Facebook page, uh, takes this right into religion. So um, whether or not we wanted to go there, let's go there at least briefly, Dr. Davies. Uh, Stephen Amott writes, and this is exactly why, for the most part, revealed religion and science will never agree. Whenever science and revealed religion come into conflict, revealed religion takes precedence. Not sometimes, every time. And the, you know, there there are religious beliefs which uh, sometimes counter uh, the, you know the scientific evidence, as as you would see it. I'm, I'm sure, Doctor Davies. Well. Um Certainly, no. They don't. They are. They are contradictory to the evidence. But I think this is an interesting thing that uh, it's a. It's certainly a question I pose to my students all the time. Is when you, whenever you say to yourself, "I believe," dot dot dot. Uh, as we hopefully, as we get older and, and more experienced, the next thing we should ask ourselves immediately is based on what. And if what it's based on is not evidence-based, uh, then it's, 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 it's a red flag. We need to really uh, re-examine what it is we believe and why. And, um, you know, I think in the realm of public policy where, where we come into problems with uh, perhaps with religious beliefs or with any beliefs that are not evidence-based is when, when people start to make 
uh, not just decisions in their own personal lives that affect their own personal lives, but decisions that affect the public at large. In other words, as we start to base public policy on uh, beliefs that have no basis in in actual evidence, that's I think is is where we get this disconnect. Mm. Uh, so let's uh, let's uh, read this email that'll get us into talking about uh, population, which was the major subject for, for yesterday's program, the major subject of Jonathan last book. Um, and uh, but this is very interesting, I believe, at least to me, uh, because uh, an idea about uh, population and its connections with sustainability, in other words, overpopulation, that I think really affects how some people live their lives and how you know. So we have fewer children, and that that's how we're being sustainable. Uh, that that kind of thing. Well, absolutely, and th- this is actually one of the reasons I wanted to uh, a chance to just talk about this a little bit more today. Is uh, you know, and I, I don't really take issue at all with uh, any of Mr. Last's. Uh, demographic data. He's got data mostly coming from the UN and, and quite a number of research groups around the world. They're all converging on the same answers. They're seeing population is still going up, but the rate of increase is dropping. Uh, we understand why that is for the most part, and the, and you can start to model it, and you start to see a, a peaking of the world population sort of in the latter half of the century, somewhere between, say, 9 and 11 billion people. It's what most of the models are converging on. And he was he was making those points and then taking digging down further in the data and saying, well, what does this mean for different societies? And I, I think that, that was all very uh, good and well-researched and interesting. But he was also, uh, interestingly, you know, a caller called in, and he was very dismissive of the notion of overpopulation. And in fact, uh, I've got, I wrote down the quote of what he said yesterday. It was only flat earthers and one or two radical environmentalists today worry about overpopulation. And um, this statement is just, well, just wrong. Uh, When we talk to, when we talk about who is worried about overpopulation, I mean, it's a who's who of the best minds in the business of of sustainability. People like uh, the eminent biologist uh, E.O. Wilson, uh, environmental and sustainability experts David Orr, uh, Jeffrey Sachs, the Nobel Prize winning Wangari Maathai from Kenya, Sir John Sulston, a Nobel Prize winning biologist. He's chair of the Royal Society's working group on sustainability, the Royal Society being a collection of the most prestigious scientists in the United Kingdom. He recently wrote that the world has now a very clear choice. We can choose to address the twin issues of population and consumption, or we can choose to do nothing and drift toward a vortex of economic, sociopolitical, and environmental ills, leading to a more unequal, inhospitable future. This is quite an eminent person in the field, certainly not dismissive of overpopulation. The World's Scientific Academies as a whole, in joint statement, uh, last year from 105 of the World's Scientific Academies, uh, wrote uh, that the need to address human overpopulation and consumption, or we need to address human overpopulation and consumption or risk potentially catastrophic implications for human well-being. And so my point is that uh, overpopulation is of great concern to many. In fact, I think one could say nearly all of the scientific community who study these issues. And so uh, when Mr. Blast sort of provocatively, and I understand he's, he's written an interesting book and is trying to sell some books, when he says, though, that, you know, the notion uh, that the, the population uh, bomb didn't explode, well, I think the scientific community would not agree with the statement that the population bomb didn't explode. In fact, they're saying it is exploding and contributing to the ignition of societal fires that threaten to become a real conflagration. Um, and why do I say that? It's Well, and this comes from the notion of, of overconsumption, which is tied to overpopulation. It's certainly not the only uh, uh, factor. But we are currently overconsuming our resource base by, by any number of estimates at about 140 percent. 
And so from the standpoint of being able to sustain this population, this current population that we're at of 7 billion, with our combined societal systems of food and energy and economy as they're currently constructed, from that standpoint, we know that we are already overpopulated. Hmm. Is there a consensus at all on a, a peak? In other words, you know, I hear a peak of, I don't know, 9, 11 billions, whatever it is, and then a drop-off. Do, is there consensus agreement with Mr. Last that at some point there will be a drop-off? Well, Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, all the models uh, from the groups who study this, and I think the the, the UN tends to be the, the sort of the clearinghouse for these places. But as I said, they uh, they show peaking of somewhere between nine to eleven billion uh, in the latter half of the century. You know, sometime after twenty fifty. And you're saying that the, there's consensus, or at least uh, several important scientists are saying that that nine to eleven is potentially unsustainable at that point. Well, we're already as sustainable at our current consumption patterns at seven billion. Um, when I say that we're overconsuming at 140%, that means that we need 1.4 planets to sustain our current consumption without more population. Now, that number, you know, might be 1.3, and it might be 1.5, but the point is it's a number bigger than one. Mm. Um, and and with growth, the, with the point of growth being to raise the standards of living of, you know, uh, the rest of the planet, the half of the planet that, that is developing— um, if, if everyone consumed like Americans, uh, we can calculate we would need between four and five Earths to sustain us currently. So, um, you know, Mr. Last addressed this notion of what, what's called carrying capacity. And he, uh, he was very dismissive of this notion as well and just saying, well, we don't know anything. Uh, when you look at the data, the numbers are all over the map. And, and this is, again, quite a misleading statement. I mean, he's technically correct. But the reason he's correct is because the notion of carrying capacity, how many can the planet support, support sustainably, is strongly dependent, in fact, entirely dependent on what you choose for your standards of living. So if you choose, for example, just to give every person on the planet the bare minimum they need, sort of like cattle in a feedlot, well, then you get one number for carrying capacity. Uh, it's pretty high. Um, if you, on the other hand, say, well, we want every individual on the planet to have what they need to flourish, sort of raise people to the level of standard of living in the developed world that we have, uh, and even making allowances for increased efficiency uh, in technology and as, as we move along. Uh, but if you make that assumption, well, then the numbers of carrying capacity come down dramatically. And, you know, the numbers I see quite frequently being bantered around the literature under that assumption is sort of two to four billion people. Um, so... The notion that we don't know anything about carrying capacity is, is wrong. And, and even though we don't have an exact number, it's uh, not knowing everything about, about this, this quantity is not the same as not, as not knowing anything. We, we are bounding it. And at our current consumption patterns, we can say that we're already, you know, overpopulated. Mm. If you just joined us, we're talking with uh, Dr. Robert Davies. He's a physicist and climate change and sustainability educator. Uh, he uh, works here at Utah State University. Uh, you'll recognize his voice as uh, one of the meteorologists from the Utah Climate Center that uh, uh, gives their uh, the, the forecasts on uh, Utah Public Radio. Yeah, I, know, I think I have the forecast this you, evening. Uh, you have forecast <laughs> this evening. Great. And your uh, program coordinator, I believe, with the... Uh, Utah Climate Center, among As well. several yes, several right. positions at Utah State University. Uh, you're welcome to join this conversation. It's a continuation of a conversation on population, climate change, and sustainability from yesterday when we talked with Jonathan Last, senior writer with the Weekly Standard, about his book, his new book, which is called What to Expect When No One's Expecting. His point was that the population bomb never exploded. In fact, we need to worry about an opposite problem, which is underpopulation. There are going to be some uh, ill effects uh, and he's uh, talking mostly about America, 
uh, in if we don't start having more babies. Um, and uh, several comment, uh, commenters uh, took issue with some of the points he made. Um, Dr. Davies asked for some rebuttal time while we're giving him that uh, today. We'd love to hear your point of view. Uh, what is your general point of view on this question of overpopulation or underpopulation, and how do those views or beliefs on climate change and population and sustainability affect your lifestyle? Have you purposely had fewer children because of uh, because of your views on on this? Uh, do you bike to work? Do you how does this affect your your personal life? And maybe even more interesting and more dangerous. And I'll pose this to you, uh, Doctor Davies. You can handle it as carefully as you as you wish. Um, no. Where the rubber really meets the road is when we suggest that's the kind word to our neighbor how they should be living because of in our beliefs on on some of these things so for example this this really gets gets personal and you know it, would you suggest to your neighbor that they have fewer children uh no <laughs> i would not do that uh you know i think um when one talks about sustainability uh in the global sense there it's i think it's very important to talk about and and certainly the big minds in the in the world who think about this uh and, and do the science, really we'll divide it into sort of two separate uh, places. There are these personal actions that we take in our own lives. Um, we may choose to have fewer kids or no kids. We may choose to bike, as you said. We may um, emphasize uh, personal conservation, sustainability measures in our own lives, you know, change the light bulbs, insulate the house, uh, don't drive, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the the scale of the situation with with sort of how unsustainable we are currently living is such that and and economists or environmentalists you know I, I think sometimes cringe uh, at this when the hard scientists come in and say this but this is well I, I don't want to distinguish it. many environmentalists are hard scientists but the numbers are such that we, we like to say that well if everybody does just a little it adds up to a lot uh, but the reality is if everybody does just a little it adds up to a little. Um, and and that's what happens in our personal lives. And I don't want to diminish the importance of making these changes in our personal lives. It's what the, the psychologists would call taking ownership of the problem. But if we want to make a difference, the, the unsustainability of our current uh, global society is arising from the systems, uh, the pillars of our global society, our systems of food, energy, and, and economy. Uh, and... In order to transition us to a more sustainable world, it really requires changing these systems. Um, certainly overpopulation is a piece of the puzzle, but and rightly so, uh, uh, sustainability science is careful about the way we talk about overpopulation because oftentimes the onus then gets thrown onto the countries with the fastest growing population, when in fact, you know, here in the United States, for example, uh, as Mr. Last pointed out, our, our birth rates are declining, but when we are about 4 or 5% of the world's population, we consume 20 to 25% of the world's resources. So one person, in terms of sheer numbers, in the United States is, has, a, has a resource footprint of, uh, I think the number I've seen recently is 55 Indians. So what is overpopulation? Again, it goes back to, well, what do we decide— is going to be our stand, our standards of well-being and our resource consumption. Uh, so it's kind of more important that Americans, actually from a global sustainability viewpoint, uh, have fewer children who consume less and then propagate that down the road. Um, 
So any one solution, like just suggesting to your neighbor that they have fewer children, is really uh, not only sort of uh, uh, insulting, I think, and, and arrogant to make. Um, nobody is, certainly, I've not run across people suggesting that we do that. Rather, we need to, what I would suggest to my neighbor is to start learning to understand this notion of sustainability, which is going to be very important to whatever children that they have, in a more holistic manner. Everything we do contributes to it. The way we produce and consume energy, the way we produce and consume consumer goods, food, for example, uh, the way we treat water, the, the, the waste streams that we create, all of that is important. That's what I want my neighbors to be thinking about. Uh, and whether they choose to use incandescent light bulbs or, or uh, have two kids instead of three, or, or I, I think those matters are actually less important. Mm-hmm. Do you think you're, uh, I don't know, I've, I've seen, I've witnessed um, some exchanges, which uh, didn't get heated, but it, you know, at least it got kind of in, into that area. And I wonder if you're kind of on the more reasonable end of the, of the spectrum. I, I have I have seen people sort of prescribing for for their neighbor <laughs> some some behaviors that, that that they feel. You know, you, you you seem very reasonable on the on the subject from the point of view of those who don't want to adopt those behaviors. But I have seen some of the sustainability movement be a little more assertive on this. Well, you know, we all have our good days and our bad days as well. Uh, sometimes we, particularly those who spend a lot of time thinking about these uh, these matters, forget that uh, people whose whose livelihoods don't depend on studying these things and, and learning about them and trying to think about how we uh, address these problems. Sometimes we forget that that's not how everybody spends their time in their lives, and, and you need to go back. It's not that people aren't interested in, in providing a sustainable, clean, healthy, happy world for ourselves, for our neighbors, for our children. It's just that we often don't have time or haven't thought about or uh, these things in as much detail as, say, those of us who study them. So we can get frustrated at times having to make the same arguments over and over. And then, of course, also having to address the same misinformation uh, over and over again. We'll maybe get to that a little bit with mm-hmm. the comment that Mr. Last made about climate change. Um, I think oftentimes these these misconceptions arise perfectly honestly, but uh, it it can sometimes get tiresome having to address the same things over and over again. And and so I think sometimes maybe we, <laughs> I've I've certainly had my uh, my moments where I get a little warm behind the eyebrows with someone and, and maybe have to disengage. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and perhaps on the other side as well. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Robert Davies, who is a physicist, a climate change and sustainability educator. We're talking about population, continuing a conversation uh, from yesterday. Also, climate change. We're going to get into talking about climate change and sustainability. We want to know what your views are. Where, what's your stand on climate change, uh, sustainability, and population? How does that affect your lifestyle? And, and how do you think uh, that should affect policy questions and uh, and how your neighbors should live? We'd love to hear from you at 1-800-826-1495. We're opening the phone lines for you, 1-800-826-1495. You can comment on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page, or you can give us an email at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Following a break, uh, we'll continue discussion of population. We'll get into climate change. We'll hear a comment from Mr. Last from yesterday. We'll hear uh, comments uh, by email from Dell Erickson in Minneapolis and uh, Frosty Woldridge in Colorado. Some interesting well, comments. That's a great name. That is a great name. Yeah. Uh, so we'll uh, we'll hear those comments. Hopefully yours as well. We'll continue the conversation with Dr. Robert Davies, uh, physicist and climate change and sustainability educator at Utah State University. Following the break.
The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. Skin cancer is the most common type of cancer in the United States. The harmful ultraviolet rays from both the sun and indoor tanning sun lamps can cause many other complications besides skin cancer, such as eye problems, a weakened immune system, age spots, wrinkles, and leathery skin. Wear clothing that will protect your skin from the harmful UV rays such as long sleeve shirts and pants. Stay out of the sun if possible between the peak burning hours, which are between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. Find some shade or make your own with a broad-brimmed hat. Use extra caution when at higher altitudes as there is less atmosphere to absorb UV radiation. And lastly, make sure to apply broad-spectrum sunscreen of at least 15 SPF to cover all exposed skin. By following these simple steps, you can still enjoy your time in the sun and protect yourself from overexposure. This is Nicole Jackson for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artists on Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits and lunch sandwiches. You're listening to Access Utah, and I'm Tom Williams. We're continuing a discussion on population and we're going to transition into broader sustainability and climate change issues as we go along. Uh, my guest for the hour is Dr. Robert Davies. He's a physicist and climate change and sustainability educator at Utah State University. Uh, we had several comments during the program and after the program. Dr. Davies asked for some rebuttal time. He felt that my guest yesterday, uh, Mr. Uh, Jonathan Last, who is a senior writer with the Weekly Standard, talking about his new book on population, What to Expect When No One's Expecting, uh, made some erroneous statements and uh, some factual errors uh, which need to be corrected. So we're uh, allowing uh, Dr. Davies uh, that chance today. We're allowing you the time. We'd love to hear from you on uh, population. You believe there's an overpopulation problem or an underpopulation problem? Uh, what about what's your stand on climate change? What about sustainability? How do your views, your beliefs on these issues affect your lifestyle? And uh, how do you suggest that we uh, translate these issues into the public policy arena? Uh, the number is 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Your chance to uh, give us your views on these issues. We'd love to have those. Uh, you can reach us at our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. And you can reach us by email at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Here is Del Erickson, writing from Minneapolis. Thanks for this, uh, Mr. Erickson. And I apologize, I didn't get to this. Uh, came in about uh, 10 minutes to the top of the hour yesterday, so we could have gotten in yesterday, but I, I missed this. So we'll, we'll have uh, Dr. Davies respond to this. Um, no, two points. Number one, exactly when will there be enough people in the U.S. or the world? I guess he's getting to that, to what's the proper balance. What is a sustainable population level for the U.S., Japan, the world? Numbers, please. And I don't know if you have specific numbers, uh, Dr. Davies, but he's getting to this idea of there's probably a good balance in there somewhere. We, do, we don't want to contribute to overpopulation, but uh, probably some truth to what Mr. Last says. If you have too few children, then you have some demographic imbalance in the Young people aren't able to take care of the old people through taxes and such. Well, certainly there are those uh, internal uh, issues with uh, just exactly as you mentioned. Those are uh, as much related to the structure, our, for example, our economic and social structure, uh, as they are related to the actual numbers. And as we discussed earlier, if you want specific numbers, um, 
you know, if, if we're looking at, at uh, similar standards of living that we're talking about now, even, uh, even accounting for improvements in, in technology that allow more efficient use of resources, uh, you know, I think the people who study this, if, if you want everyone on the planet to have the resources to flourish, then you're talking about numbers that are less than we are now. Um, but how you structure it within a given place, within the United States, within Japan, certainly depends on the internal structures of those places and the resources that those places have. Um, you know, the United States, relative to the rest of the world, is, is quite sparsely populated, uh, re- relative to the rest of the certainly developed world. Um, so I'd, so I, I'd like to—I don't want to just ignore the question, but I'd like to turn it around and say I'm not sure it's quite rightly posed. It, it really depends on how we answer it a number of other questions, which is, you know, what we choose to value, how we choose to measure our success. Uh, people talk about mo- transitioning to a steady-state economy, which, you know, has to happen at some point. So it's it's a kind of about how we handle this transition as we move from a growing population to a, to a steady population and then try to transition to some number that is sustainable based on this whole collection of other decisions that we make societally. His number two point to Dell Erickson in Minneapolis, he says, the U.S. and other countries have had 60 years to prepare for the retirement and death of we boomers. Uh, why does last continue to allege the same boomer-like practices that got us into this dilemma as a solution? Well, I think that's a great question. And uh, in, the, in the realm, in the world of sustainability, uh, the people who talk about transitioning us to a sustainable world, which, you know, I, I should say is going to happen. Um, we are coming up against real physical limits that you don't really negotiate with. Again, as I said, we're, we're over-consuming our resource base at 140%. The, the, you know, the G20, the G8, the, the plan for the economy, the global economy moving forward is they, they like to have a growth rate of 3 3.5%, uh, which at this point translates to a, a growth rate in consumption, not directly one-to-one, but definitely uh, up there. And what that means is, our plan right now is, even though we're over-consuming at 140%, is to be over-consuming by 280% to double that over-consumption in the next 20 years. That's a doubling time at a 3.5% growth rate. And to, and to quadruple that over-consumption to 560% you know, by mid-century. And what physics, chemistry, biology, and those scientists will tell you is, is that's not going to happen. We're not going to get anywhere near that level of overdrive of the system before pieces of the system start to fall apart. And so nature is going to start imposing upon us a transition to a, quote, sustainable uh, state, which includes some number of population, some number of of energy consumption, of other resource consumption. Uh, And the question is, how do we get there? Do we uh, go transition to our, our level population and then try to, through public policy, engineer our way back down to a more sustainable population? Or do we let nature impose that on us and, and do what nature, natural systems do and it's just have a population crash? And, uh, and one of them involves a great deal more human suffering than the other. And so I think the—and and the people who talk about how to work our way back down to a sustainable number to get back to um, the, the commenter's question, uh, they— basically tell us we can't look at the same policies that we've had. We've got to start talking about a completely different agricultural system, a completely different energy system, and a completely different economic system. And people have been studying how to do these things. We're not in the wilderness on this. There's been a lot of progress in terms of ideas as to how do we do that. 
Here's another email uh, that uh, came in uh, yesterday um, during the show, and I apologize I didn't get to this, so, so we'll uh, get it in now. This is from uh, Peter uh, Salonius. Uh, thanks for this, Peter. It's a uh, fairly lengthy email, but uh, part of this includes an, uh, an article that he recommends. Um, but I'll just read the first paragraph, which uh, catches this idea of overshoot that you were just talking about. Uh, it says, Peter, I thought you might be interested to read a thesis that suggests that human overshoot of carrying capacity has existed since the advent of cultivation agriculture and that rapid population reduction with one child per family reproductive behavior is required by the entire human family now to bring our numbers down below 1 billion by 2100. That, that seems a pretty radical prescription, but he, he's talking about this idea of overshoot and, and, and that what you were just saying, that, that uh, nature will impose this on us or, you know, we might uh, change behaviors, but uh, it's going to happen. Well, it would be nicer if we could uh, engineer public policy, uh, create public policy in a way that, that avoids, you know, some of the nastiness of a population crash. I don't know where he's getting the number of a billion. Um, I do a lot of reading in the realm of sustainability. I've, I've never really, with the modern sustainability uh, research groups and, and people who look at this, and there are many of them, I've, I've not seen numbers that low. Uh, but two to four billion is what I frequently see, if, uh, again, with the stipulation that it's uh, standard of living for, for everyone on the planet that is uh, commensurate with what we in the developed world have come to, come to hope for. Um, so... Yes, we. Uh, and but I would say that if if the numbers maybe somewhere around five billion, under five billion, then we are already in a state of overshoot, and uh, and we need and and oftentimes the the metaphor that gets used is it's we're now living off the capital, not the interest. So if if you've got a trust fund and and you want to live off the interest of that, that is sustainable. If you want to start dipping into the capital, uh, and you basically are are you know, spending, say, 140% every month of what you earn or what you take in, that is not sustainable for, for very long. And um, and that's what means we're an overshoot. We've gone over the 100% level we're at a, and, and are continuing to rise. We're talking with uh, Dr. Robert Davies, physicist and climate change and sustainability educator at Utah State University, responding to our conversation from yesterday with Jonathan Lass, senior writer with The Weekly Standard. His book is What to Expect When No One's Expecting. He says that we are going to have a problem of underpopulation and that if we want to compete, we need to have more babies in America. That's his thesis in, in a very capsulated form. And uh, we do have a few more, a couple more emails, uh, Dr. Davies. I'll have you respond to these, the uh, first of which, and by the way, you can join the program. We'd love it if you did. Uh, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, responding to population or climate change or sustainability issues, uh, anything that you'd like to respond to. Uh, you can join us on uh, by telephone at 1-800-826-1495, one 826 or on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. This is Danielle in Logan. One piece of information last forgot to mention yesterday were the areas in the world that are experiencing overpopulation problems. Sure, Japan may be under the curve a bit, but I think it's more important to look at places like India and certain countries in Africa. They consume very little and still have extremely terrible overpopulation problems. And uh, so, Dr. Davies, am I right in looking to these places? I didn't hear it mentioned at all yesterday, and I think these locations are a prime example of what could happen in the future, although I realize there are many other problems that uh, 
led these places to their current state. I'll just uh, jump in before I uh, hand this over to you, Dr. Davies. We, we did mention this a little bit. I, I recall uh, Mr. Last mentioned Afghanistan, for example, passing, right. but it, it, we didn't lean on it. So go ahead. Well, this comes to the notion, too, of, of gee, what do we do? And it's not a, a prescription for one, uh, one nation fits all. Uh, the reason that many developing uh, and non-developed countries have uh, large population growth is because there is a lot of uncertainty. There's a high infant mortality. And so uh, if, if parents need to have one or two or three children survive their uh, subsistence agriculture, for example, um, but you have a high infant mortality rate, you, you hedge your bets, and, they, and you have more children than you think that you're basically the, uh, it's, it's awful to think about, but you say not everyone's going to survive. And so we have to have more. So as you bring more development to uh, and more uh, resource stability to these nations, uh, then actually what we find, uh, and there's a great deal of data to this, and Mr. Last mentioned this, is that is that population uh, fertility rates start to drop when people have are have had their two children and they're secure that those two children are going to survive. They stop having children. Um, and it's there's certainly it's more complex than that, but that is certainly one factor that you hear uh, a big factor that you hear uh, the experts in this topic talk about. And here's an email that uh, uh, came in uh, yesterday after the program. This is from uh, Matt Moran. It's uh, quite lengthy, but I'll try to get most of this in. Uh, he says population growth ultimately makes everyone poorer, including rich and including the rich, and will also cost people in the media their jobs or force them to take pay cuts. It will mean much more, uh, much poorer access to services, including hospitals, schools, and ultimately mean a bankrupt economy and ecology. I'm perplexed that Jonathan Last has given any credibility. With all the world expects and, and scientists reaching the same uh, obvious conclusion, there are already too many of us on the planet to afford everyone a decent quality of life, let alone all of the other life forms we share this planet with. And yet, current projections have us hitting 11 billion by 2100 as Africa's population is set to quadruple. He puts that in capital letters, or at least uh, capitalizes it. Uh, India is growing by uh, 27 million a year, and neither of these uh, countries is coming close to giving the majority of their people a decent quality of life. The U.S. is following suit deliberately and increasingly failing to provide for its citizens. At what point do the media, government, and big business recognize that this strategy has failed and now the U.S. is in serious trouble? Indeed, it seems that a very rational response of Americans in having fewer children due to rising living costs and expenses of having children coupled with the glaringly obvious global issues of accelerated wildlife extinction, civil unrest, food shortages, water shortages, the reality that we are consuming finite and renewable resources far more quickly than either are being replaced is considered a problem when it's actually the only sensible, responsible, loving path. Um, and he says, I'll just skip some of this. Uh, I leave you with this article by Dan Gardner from Growthbusters, in which he argues that stable populations outperform fast-growing cities. And that's on onlineopinion.com. Uh, so that's uh, Matt Moran. So thanks for that. I think we've covered most of the things that he, he said, Dr. Davies. Yeah, he, he, uh, he packed a lot in there. And I think uh, if you take it all as a, as a whole, he's, he's getting the picture. And uh, let's get this uh, email in from uh, Frosty Wildridge, who we uh, referenced before. Um, this is a, just a brief part of his biography. He sent me several articles uh, along the same lines of what we've been talking about, that the, the, the overpopulation is a sustainability problem. 
And he says Frosty Woldridge uh, has a unique view of the world, cultures, and families in that he's bicycled around the globe uh, 100,000 miles on six continents and seven times across the U.S. in the past 35 years. He's written hundreds of articles for 17 national and two international magazines. He's had hundreds of guest editorials published in top uh, national newspapers, including Denver Post, etc., etc. And uh, then he offers up several uh, articles uh, along the lines that we've been talking about, that overpopulation is a problem. So, uh, And he offers himself as a resource for us, so we'll We'll keep you in mind, uh, Mr. Woldridge, for future population programs. Thank you for those articles. Uh, then this is from Charles Ashurst. He says, uh, Dr. Davies commented that systems of agriculture and energy have to change if humanity is to be sustainable. Some who hear that might read into it an agenda of state-imposed coercion of behavior. How would Dr. Davies answer that charge? Well, uh you know, in a democracy, I, I always find it interesting that we, we tend to throw on this this word, the government or the state. And, and I know Charles, and hey, Charles, uh, good to hear from you. Um, that's, a, that's a great question. And I, and I would say it's not so much how is it state-imposed, but, but we are facing very large risks uh, with our overconsumption of resources. And the way that we collectively address risk is politics, is through our government. Uh, and another term for our government I often use is just our community. It is us as a national community, as a state community, as a local community, deciding, uh, making decisions as to what do we need to for, for everyone in the community to reasonably expect um, happy, productive, secure lives. So certainly there is that notion that we have to start creating public policy uh, that that pushes us in sustainable directions. And there's, there's nothing new about that. We've, we do that all the time. Uh, regulations, uh, the Clean Air and Clean Water Act are great examples of that. And, um, you know, uh, we, we outlaw all kinds of behaviors and substances and uh, with that in mind. So certainly that's the case, but the stakes now are much bigger. Um, we simply cannot pr- proceed forward uh, <laughs> on the path that we are on and expect um, with such high risks involved. And so, yes, public policy must be involved. And Charles continues, I tend to think sustainability requires a culture that values sustainability. Dr. Davies likes to avoid cultural arguments, but uh, doesn't it all come down to a cultural argument? Uh <laughs> You know, well, that's a good question for sociologists and, uh, and psychologists. I, my, my personal experience with this is yes, absolutely. But I think we already have the cultural values there. Uh, we just don't behave like it at the moment because we often don't see these problems as real. You know, here in the United States, certainly here in Cache Valley, we have nice lives, most of us. I certainly do. And it just doesn't feel like we're, being on the, we're on the edge. Uh, nevertheless, we are deceived and... This is where we need to pay attention to to the data. You know, I used to fly airplanes um, when I was younger, and when you learn to fly, you learn something that the instructor says, trust the instruments. So uh, if you fly into a cloud, you can't see the horizon, you have an artificial horizon there. And even though it can actually feel like you're in a dive or you're in a turn, uh, if your instrument says you're straight and level, then you're straight and level. Or it may feel like you're straight and level, and the, and the instruments tell you you're in a dive and a turn, and you have to trust your instruments. And we're kind of in that position now. We don't we're at the top of the pyramid. We don't often experience many of these impacts of living unsustainably globally right now. But we, the, the science is very clear that we are living unsustainably. We have to trust that. Uh, it's a system that's brought us uh, tremendous success. So 
Um, I think we have the cultural values. We just don't, it just doesn't seem real to us sometimes. And so in my mind, communicating this and, and moving the population to changing the systems is about making the, the impacts real to people, putting, putting them in a real context and helping people uh, understand uh, the, the very large, very real risks that we're, that we're taking. We're talking to uh, Dr. Robert Davies, a physicist and climate change and sustainability educator. And uh, he is uh, responding to the program from yesterday, What to Expect When No One's Expecting by Jonathan Last. Let me get this um, email in. And then I know Dr. Davies wants to talk about uh, some specific things directly on climate change, which we will uh, get to following a short break. I promise, Dr. Davies. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to hold this it is, that time. This is from, <laughs> this is from uh, Dolores. Uh, Lochterman, who emails us. Uh, FYI, for Access Utah listeners, Dr. Robert Davies and Susan Soleil from Utah Interfaith Power and Light will be featured speakers on climate change, sustainability, and an ice cream social to be held on Saturday, July 27th uh, from 1.30 to 4 p.m. in uh, Bruner Hall of the uh, First Presbyterian Church in Logan. The public is invited to attend. Your listeners might also be interested to know that First Presbyterian Church has been certified as an Earth Care Congregation by Presbyterian Church USA. So there's a plug for an event that you'll be uh, speaking at, Dr. Davies. Yeah, I'm glad she reminded me. I just pulled it up on my calendar. <laughs> so, you. so you may have helped Dr. Yeah. Davies remember and get, and get yeah. there. So thanks for that. Uh, we'll take a brief break. We'll come back. We'll hear a specific quote from uh, Jonathan Last from yesterday, and we'll jump right into a couple of points that uh, uh, Dr. Davies is anxious to make on climate change. On the show to hear their incredible musical performances, we celebrate the whole kid. We're all members of the Vermont Astronomical Society, and uh, we've also gotten really into building telescopes. I run cross country and I run track. Well, I'll eat anything as long as it's not looking at me as, and as long as it's not moving around. I believe the correct term is math stud. Join me, Christopher O'Reilly, to meet America's most outstanding young musicians on From the Top each week from NPR. Friday afternoons at 2, repeated Sunday nights at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Did you know that nearly half of preschool children in the U.S. do not go outside to play every day? And parents are less likely to take their daughters outside to play than their sons. Children's books also focus less on natural environments today than they did 50 years ago. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting Shakespeare's Richard II with seven other productions June through October 2013 in Cedar City, www.bard.org. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, yesterday on the program, we uh, as my guest, uh, senior writer with the Weekly Standard, uh, conservative publication, um, out with a new book. Jonathan Last is his name, and his book is What to Expect When No One's Expecting. His thesis is that uh, so far from overpopulation, what we really have to worry about is underpopulation. It's going to have ill effects around the world, and specifically in America, that's uh, where he was focused. And if we, need to, if we want to compete, we need to have more babies. Uh, so he made several points, of course, uh, and uh, some of those points uh, troubled some of our, commentator, our commenters. Uh, including Dr. Robert Davies, who's a physicist and climate change and sustainability educator, found uh, some of the comments uh, factually incorrect. 
and uh, wanted some rebuttal time, and so we're happy to continue that discussion today on population, sustainability, and climate change. If you have a comment or a question, we'd love to hear from you at 1-800-826-1495. We have about seven minutes left, uh, and we could certainly get your comment in. 1-800-826-1495, or you can email us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. So next, let's hear what uh, Jonathan Last had to say. This came near the end of the program yesterday on climate change, and then we'll have Dr. Davies respond. We are back on our pollution levels here in America to where we were in 1990. We've actually gone backwards, even as our population has increased. Uh, and, you know, I would say, to, I always say to my environmentalist friends on this stuff, you have to realize, you know, there are multiple considerations here. And so, you know, I have a lot of friends who are concerned about climate change. They, you know, climate change, climate change, climate change. They say the most important thing is global warming. I would say, well, you know, there are two things about that. First of all, we are very nearly outside of the global warming 90 percentile confidence levels. Uh, and we are, you know, we've been flat for about 15 or 16 years right now. Even the economists wrote a big piece about this, you know, rethinking all their assumptions about climate change. But more to the point, you know, so one of the quick fixes, if you really believe that carbon consumption is the most important thing in the world, uh, one of the quick fixes to lowering our carbon consumption is to switch over and build nuclear plants everywhere. Not a lot of environmentalists want to do that, and that's because they have concerns about nuclear power. Well, that's fine. But you have to understand that, again, you're now balancing concerns. You know, so now you have concerns about carbon balanced with concerns about, well, what are the side effects of nuclear power? And I'm simply saying we need to balance one of the concerns we should be balancing here is the, the actual welfare of the population in America and across the world. So that's Jonathan Last uh, speaking yesterday on Access Utah. And uh, there are a couple of points I know you, you want to rebut in there on climate change, Dr. Davies. Yeah, there, there's actually just a he, – he very – he was just spectacular at putting some uh, – quite a bit of, of incorrect information in that statement uh, very efficiently. And I, uh, I, I think it was uh, – I think it was, you know, honest mistake. Uh, but let me start with the – there's two things, one on pollution and one on climate change. Let me start with a statement on climate change where he said, you know, we've been flat now for about 10 or 15 years. I assume he means uh, global temperatures. Um, he said glo- uh, on global warming. I, w- I want to be very, very clear. This is a common mistake, but uh, he's getting this wrong, just, you know, completely wrong. Uh, global warming is not only continuing, uh, it is accelerating. Uh, and to be fair, I just I don't blame him completely for getting it wrong, uh, but get it wrong he has. And where he's getting confused is the difference between energy balance and energy redistribution within the climate system and air temperature versus uh, global service temperature. So here are the facts. Uh, Because of our addition of greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, we are trapping energy in the Earth's system that used to leave the system. Uh, Quite a lot of energy, actually, as it turns out. And this creates an imbalance, more energy coming in than leaving. And here's the number. We are adding about four atomic bombs worth of energy to the Earth's system every second. Uh, That's about 1.2 million bombs every year. And that is warming us. But it's not just warming the air. It is warming the land surface, uh, the ice, and the oceans as well. About 2% of this energy is going into warming the atmosphere, about 2% into the land, about 2% into the ice. That's about 94% of this energy is going into the ocean. And so uh, to quantify global warming, we don't look at the air temperature. We look at what's called the combined land-ocean temperature. And this is not only uh, warming decade after decade. The warming decade after decade is accelerating dramatically. Uh, so this is where he's getting it wrong. And I just want to make sure that we understand that this we have not been flat, not even close to flat. We, the, the, the warming is accelerating. 
And it's accelerating because uh, these, this, uh, you know, a million bombs, atom bombs uh, a year worth of energy is going into our atmosphere, and that is increasing. And so, um, so that's, uh, that's the correction there. The other thing I, I want to bring up is he, at the beginning of that quote, he said, you know, we're, uh, uh, what preceded that is one of your listeners wanted to know about pollution streams and, and global pollution and the problems that are amplified by population. And uh, he came back and, and answered that question. She was asking about it globally, and he said, um, uh, let me, I just, I wrote it down here. He said that uh, on the question of environmental degradation, uh, it's difficult to look at the data and be too worried about this. In the 1970s, the U.S. was a mess, and fast forward today, we're much cleaner today. And in that quote we just heard, he said, hey, you know, we're, we're, we're back down to our 1990 pollution levels. Um, I, you know, I, uh, <laughs> there's just so much wrong with that statement, but the, the notion is this, is, uh, is it leaves the casual listener with the impression that, in fact, our, our pollution streams are, are, are lessening and that we're much cleaner today than we are. And what he did in his answer is he confined his answer to the United States, uh, and he confined it uh, to, and it's really confined to certain pollutants. Certainly, if you measure things like sulfur dioxide or lead, yes, we've gotten much cleaner. Um, but you know, uh, part of the, and then he attributed that to to technology and to conservation. In fact, it should be directly attributable to regulation. We set strict uh, laws in the early 1970s, and have tried to beef them up since. But with our population, with our continuing growth and consumption, these pollution streams have amplified dramatically. You know, uh, we have exported a lot of our pollution. Talk to the people in China, Mexico, India, Nigeria, Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador, Brazil, along the Gulf Coast of the United States, Shreveport, Louisiana, Galveston, Texas. You'll talk to people in Mayflower, Arkansas, people of Appalachia who are 50% more likely to die of cancer, 42% more likely to suffer birth defects. People of Roan County, Tennessee, who saw their county devastated by a massive coal slurry spill a couple of years ago. We've got growing dead zones in the oceans from agricultural pollution. We've got beekeepers losing their bees from pesticides and fishermen. Uh, talk to them about heavy metals like mercury. Every stream in the West uh, tested a few years ago, and every fish tested now contains mercury, largely coming from coal-fueled coal fuel uh, power plants. We've got pharmaceuticals and antibiotics in the water and our food that is increasing, synthetic hormones like uh, disruptors like bisphenol A or BPA, and the list just goes on and on. The notion that our waste streams are diminishing is simply utterly false. Uh, and so the extent that there's been some improvement in the U.S., um, it's, it's been with some pollutants, and that's good in some places, but overall the situation is, is worsening quite dramatically. Just have a couple of minutes left, so so very briefly on this. But I, I know you wanted to address this idea that environmental stewardship, uh, read regulation, uh, is a luxury, and uh, Mr. Last uh, sort of uh, made a comment to to that effect. You know, this is a common uh, refrain from the from uh, the sort of the mainstream business community and the mainstream sort of conservative world. Uh, when in fact the actual data uh, is exactly the opposite. Uh, there was just a study that came out from the EPA uh, just a few months ago assessing the effect of environmental regulation uh, economically over the last 30 years. And, uh, you know, I think the costs were something on the order of $50 billion and the returns were something on the order of $600 billion. Uh, that is the story time after time after time when you look at uh, implementation of uh, environmental regulation um, is that the the benefits economic benefits far outweigh the costs uh so the notion that that this is just a a luxury that we can afford to have if you're wealthy is is really not supported by the data it's it's the way we've been behaving um but 
developing nations are finding that, and, and here's a great example, instead of building uh, inefficient, highly polluting um, energy systems like coal-fired power plants in Bangladesh, for example, they're leapfrogging in that technology. They've now got a million solar rooftops in Bangladesh. And just skipping over uh, the the conventional technology and moving to what uh, I think Mr. Lass is calling the environmental technology is not a luxury for them. It's a huge benefit for them. And, and there are many, many such sort of examples in the environmental uh, and environmental economic literature. So this notion of us viewing, uh, protecting... <laughs> The ecosphere that supports us as being a luxury is is really quite an extraordinary thought, I think, uh, particularly coming from a conservative. Mm. You know, I, one would think that the very first thing you do is protect your life support system, because without that, all else goes down. Uh, let's uh, try to fit in uh, one last call. Gary in Cedar City. Glad you called, Gary. Uh, we'll have to make it very brief. Uh, go ahead. G- Gary, are you there? Can you hear me? Uh, yes. Well, we're, we're yeah. at the very end of the program, so uh, we'll try to get it uh, in very briefly. Real quickly, I'm a geologist who's worked in Alaska for about 50 years in my career, and my favorite city, Anchorage, Alaska, used to be under 1,000 feet of ice. This is a cycle that happens uh, every 800 years, and I appreciate the, uh, the approach that you guys are taking, but just wait. It'll cool off again. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Gary. Uh, so, well, uh, Gary, very brief rebuttal there. Gary's right. It's going to cool off again. It's going to cool off again in five or 6,000 years, uh, maybe, uh, if, if we don't interfere with the climate system too much at this juncture. Uh, interestingly enough, Gary, and anyone who's listening, the, the thousands of well-trained, uh, dedicated climate scientists who study this know about the climate cycles. It's by natural climate cycles. It's by studying these natural climate cycles that we understand that the current change in the climate is nothing related to these cycles. It's very, very different. It is triggered by our additions of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. It's happening much, much faster than the glacial, interglacial cycles Gary's referring to. So thanks for the comment, Gary. It's a reasonable question to ask. Trust me, the climate science community has asked it and answered it, and that's not what's going on. Thanks for the call, Gary, and uh, thanks for all the response by email and on Facebook. This uh, conversation can continue, hope it will, uh, at upraxis at gmail.com and on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Uh, Coming up tomorrow on the program, hope you'll join us as we revisit a conversation, very interesting conversation with filmmaker Helen Whitney. We talk a lot about her film, Forgiveness. Are there times when we should not forgive, and how can people forgive? That's coming up tomorrow on the program. Dr. Robert Davies has been my guest. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Tom. And for producers Bennett Purser and Shalane Smith-Needham, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1, 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1, 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1, 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1, 88.7 Moab, and KUSUFM HD1, 91.5 Logan.